Welcome to the Grassroots Government Podcast produced by the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. I'm Avery Davidson. Joining me are Carl Wiggers, who's the producer. Make sure that we all sound relatively good, as good as our vocal cords will allow us to sound. And Louisiana Farm Bureau National Affairs Coordinator Andy Brown. Joining us later will be Louisiana Farm Bureau Legislative Specialist, aka Lobbyist, Joe Mapes. Uh, so we're going to hook up with him a little bit later. But I want to dive right in with Andy because... Uh, you know, we've actually got something we haven't had in quite a while, and that is a full Louisiana legislative delegation. It's strange to think. It's it's usually pretty status quo, but we've had quite the shakeup uh, in our delegation. Not, not for uh, anyone's fault, but uh, just had some promotions and then had some craziness in the fifth. But uh, got a great group now and uh, look forward to moving forward with them and having a full deck to work with. Yeah, Troy Carter won that, uh, that runoff uh, for the special election to fill Cedric Richmond's seat there in the second district. Uh, he defeated Karen Carter-Peterson with a 55% of the vote to 45% of the vote for her. Uh, what are your thoughts and what are your, your hopes in working with uh, now Congressman Carter? This is exciting because we have some experience at the Farm Bureau of working with Mr. Carter, uh, particularly through Joe and Sandy down at the state capitol. They've They've told me they've known him for a long time. I'm sure y'all can ask him about that later. But, uh, you know, just to not have to go through the full education process of who the Farm Bureau Federation is, uh, to have that wonderful insurance versus federation discussion, we can get past some of that. And it's really important in the second district because a lot of times it's more urban uh, minded and just you have a little bit tougher of an education process there. But there's plenty of... uh, ag importance in the second so yeah i was about to say there's a little bit of a a small little you know navigable waterway going through that district and then a big a big louisiana crop also yeah some some little uh stream called the mississippi river (laughs) that has a few ports and uh, pieces of agriculture infrastructure there's Uh, quite a few ports between baton rouge and new orleans just a few yeah um only ships you know 60 percent of the world's grain uh through that that channel but uh yeah then there's plenty of sugarcane uh other crops as well and uh you know we're, we're excited we've heard uh from mr carter's campaign he hasn't been sworn in yet but they're looking forward to working with us and gonna get connected to him soon and now we have a, a pretty decent connection there in the fifth congressional district as well uh congresswoman julia letlow hired someone who is no stranger to agriculture and farm bureau and that is Zelly Duvall, daughter of American Farm Bureau President Zippy Duvall of Georgia. Yeah, I'm going to visit with Zelly later this morning. Uh, she just came on in the last few days, but uh, I I'm, I need to ask her if, if I can put on my best uh, President Trump voice and call her Duval like he always used to do Zippy because that, that was always entertaining. But no, we're, uh, she's she's got her own resume, uh, worked on the Hill, has worked uh, at USDA and with someone coming on the House Ag Committee to have experience both with House Ag Committee and with the programs at the USDA side. She's going to be a, a wealth of knowledge. So everybody on here hears me talk about staffers all the time and the important role they play. And so to have uh, an all-star like Zelly uh, in the fifth office is, is a home run. Did y'all ever uh, like interact or know each other in y'all's time in D.C.? Or did that not cross paths? No, we haven't crossed paths. Um, but I did – it's funny it, – I have my roots being born in Georgia, uh, been by uh, their farm 
many times. And Georgia's new Farm Bureau president shares fence rows with my family's farm in Georgia. So I've got a little, uh, y'all know I'm a Mississippi State Bulldog, but I told her in an email uh, this week that I've got a little Georgia Bulldog in me too. So uh, we're excited to work with her for sure. Cool. And you mentioned about having that experience at USDA. You know, Congress may come up with the laws, but it's USDA that writes the rules. How important is it to have that sort of crossover in the legislative process? Yeah, we're we're lucky. We uh, the most two recent staff hires uh, amongst our delegation have both been former USDA uh, employees. So Turner Bridgeforth with Clay Higgins' office has some experience over there, and now Zelly. So you got to know how the law is going to work once it's, you know, over in in the agency's hands. Implementation is a lot of times even more important than the actual legislation. So if it's not written right, uh, then it doesn't get implemented right and you're wasting taxpayer dollars and so forth. So they'll be a big help. Well, implementation is what we're starting to see from the White House, from the uh, executive branch putting into uh into action some of what was talked about on the campaign uh last night just last night was the address to the the nation address to congress uh, after the first hundred days your thoughts and uh what are we seeing here with some of these large number spending plans topping six trillion dollars yeah there's uh it's it's flowing like milk and honey up there for sure but uh it's not tasting so sweet uh to farmers and ranchers at least after what we're hearing here lately. So uh, we certainly appreciated the the attention to the pandemic and the programs that have rolled out to try to help with some of those losses and get our country back going. But now you're seeing, you know, we're 100 days in plus now uh, with this administration and they're, they're turning back to more of their campaign priorities. And, you know, everybody gets all excited during uh, campaign season and takes you know in the coffee shops and the the cooler talk uh in your offices you probably or even on the farm you know you think of what that's going to look like and what it means but uh the rubber's meeting the road now and uh when you have trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars you eventually got to pay for it and uh, we're a little worried that that may come on the backs of our members through some tax increases yeah i think uh one of the big focuses is on what one we call death taxes you know, what happens when someone passes on and then is trying to pass on their land, their assets to the their next generation, be it the sons or the daughters? What what are some of the concerns you have there, Andy? Yeah, so we all know that we tout time and time again that 95, 98-plus percent of this country's farms are made up of family-owned farms, and you get that misconception that they're not but nothing brings to light the reality of that more than trying to uh, put a tax on somebody as they pass on their land that they've worked really hard for from their generation to the next. Uh, so uh, I'm sure if anybody, it doesn't matter if you own a farm or a different kind of business, you hope one day, or even just if you just have a nine to five, you hope to be able to leave some of that to your, your kids. And we have the the worry that some of that's going to be uh, not uh, not available to our farmers anymore to do because their tax burden when they die is going to be so high for their children to pay that they're going to have to sell the farm or sell the equipment to, to pay that tax bill. At least that's what's being proposed. So um, the first really 
target of that is through a, a thing called stepped up basis. So uh, that's a part of, uh, and we're going to get into a little bit of ticky tack tax uh, lingo here. So just bear with us. But um, the upside is we have Carl who doesn't understand any of this. Yeah, I think we're going to change Carl's title from chief producer to chief question asker because he does a great job of <laughs> I've got, keeping, I've got uh, some coming already I can just feel it can we get can we go over some definitions we we can try and I will fully admit that I'm uh, uh this is this is a lot of this is just on paper and I'm not an accountant and I'm not a CPA so even for our members to try to express some of this uh for somebody like me it it gets tough but um yeah, you definitely want to. Anything we talk about here, none of this is going to be set in stone. It's going to be different for different farms. So if you have some really specific questions or concerns, see your tax experts, see your tax attorney, see your CPA, talk to your estate planner. These are the people who will be able to answer the questions for your farm. But we're just going to kind of talk broadly here. I guess I'm giving the disclaimer. That's a very here, nice disclaimer. <laughs> well, and that's that's where things are in Congress. I mean, it's all big picture. But what we have to try to do is bring that down to the farm level and show that these grand priorities to pay for grand infrastructure packages in the four to six trillion dollar range have real consequences on a family farm mm-hmm. in the state of Louisiana. And that's that's the bottom line. Is it really does and what we're seeing that start with, or at least the first attack on that that has real legs in Congress right now, is this uh, repeal of stepped-up basis. So uh, it, the easiest way to explain that is through a hypothetical, I think. So uh, if you look at, let's just say, Carl uh, owns a farm, and Carl bought said farm for $100,000 when uh, he was getting into farming. He farmed, worked hard, um, maintained that business, lived off that business, and uh, is coming to the end of his life. And now that farm is worth a million dollars. We all know that typically land does not decrease in value. It appreciates on paper over time. But Carl's been making about the same profit margin on that acre uh, or those acres over those years. But now, because urbanization and as my granddaddy would say they ain't making any more of that land Mm -hmm. uh, increases in value so carl's land is now worth a million dollars carl passes away carl has a little carl jr that uh, wants to take over the farm and and so he's going to uh, pass that on uh, through an estate uh, to to little carl so now carl jr inherits this and the government decides, well, uh, we need to tax you on that uh, change of property, change of hands, and uh, we're going to tax all that value that has been acquired over those years of that business. Even though you weren't the owner of it, you should now have to pay that uh, $900,000 value of, of capital gains. So... There's now, a scenario. Yeah, and you're now talking about a different tax bracket than just uh, income tax because capital gains are taxed at a higher level, a higher percentage. Well, and then it's it's really double taxation because you've paid you know any any profit that Carl was earning through income over that time he was paying his income taxes. Well, as property, he was also paying property taxes on that farm just for owning the land. So. 
there's all these other taxes that are helping fund these government projects. But now, well, he passed away and is, is moving his hard-earned uh, business over to his son. So we, we need to get a cut as the federal government. Uncle Sam needs their piece. So right now, thankfully, what we've worked off of for many, many years is this stepped-up basis idea that um, Carl Jr. would not have to pay if he sells that land if he if he moves on a few years down the road and needs to get out of farming, he goes to sell that same acreage. Instead of paying the taxes on whatever value increase he saw in his time of owning the farm, he'll have to pay the taxes from his daddy and any previous uh, ownership of that business, you know, within the family. So instead of paying, let's say the land went up another hundred thousand dollars in his time. On a hundred thousand dollars, he's all of a sudden having to come up with a million dollars, a million taxation on a million dollars. Right, and the the rates change. That's why we're not going to get into specific rates, yeah. but depending on the value. But um, the key part here is that this isn't just just farms that are having to deal with this. Stepped up basis and capital gains are taxed on a lot of things. But you hear on the campaign trail that oh, we're going to tax the wealthy and we're going to tax the the rich and they need to pay their fair share. Well, you hear it a lot, and this kind of brings some truth behind it that farmers' wealth are tied up in dirt, and mm-hmm. that's not an asset that you can just liquidate all of a sudden and have a lot of cash flow. So, back to the example, real quick, is in that year that Carl Jr. decides to sell that property, all of a sudden he's got hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax burden when his annual cash flow from his farm is nowhere close to that amount. So you're talking about a tax bill all of a sudden that you have not anywhere near the cash to to pay it with. And that's that's the scary part. That's what sends people into a spiral of bankruptcy and liquidating assets that they are essential to making the next crop. Yeah. You can't you can't liquidate assets. You can't liquidate half your land to pay your bill and then afford to keep farming that same the land that's left i mean yeah or even if you want to maintain the land and well my other assets what are those uh well equipment um keep farming without a tractor right so that there's not just this pot of liquidable assets to maintain to pay your tax bill Mm -hmm. in the farming world i would argue that there shouldn't have to be in a business in anywhere that you liquidate assets to pay your tax bill but that's not yeah. the subject we're on today. Yeah, it's not like it's not like stocks or anything that doesn't that's not tangible. Right. These are tangible assets. Well, and one other piece to the farming side is you're also tied up in a ton of risk that you may have appreciated in value from $100,000 to a million dollars over that time, but you've also taken on a lot more expense. All the expenses for all of your inputs on that same acre have gone up as well. So really the profit margin hasn't changed. You've just, everything's gone up. The numbers up, have gotten bigger. But Uncle Sam doesn't see that. All they see is that your assets that they can tax have increased in value. And so you should distribute some of your wealth back to the government and help them pay for infrastructure plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, 
I, I think that we're going to see a lot, a lot more discussion about this. I know American Farm Bureau has been putting out a lot of uh, messaging on this. And Carl brought up a good point earlier before we uh, got on the air. It's that you're hit with this sort of thing at a really bad time in your life. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, I mean, actually, we're fixing to be in May, which is mental health awareness. And whenever we were talking about this just in the office, I was just thinking about the mental health aspect of this and not to go too deep into it, but my dad's a farmer. I was thinking about if I was ever in the situation where I'm dealing with this all of a sudden estate tax burden and like figuring this out, it would be right after I've lost my dad, you know, or something like that, you know, which is a horrible time in anyone's life, but you amplify it with, this huge tax burden and having to make decisions about, well, do I get rid of some land? Do I, what do I do? Do I, do I leave farm bureau and go work on the farm or, and that personal, I guess, emotional side of, of the situation came up. And that's what, that's what I thought of whenever I thought of this, but that doesn't, you can't put a price tag on that. Uh, And it just, it just adds complication to it. Well, and it, it really punishes people who've done their due diligence on creating an estate plan. I mean, we as an organization talk all the time of encouraging people to create an estate plan to maintain the family farm because I hate to tell you, if land comes up for sale these days with the amount of risk that you have to take to purchase it, you know, you would you would hope that our government would be finding ways to help, you know, the small farmer be able to grow their business, not to, to hinder them. So the reality of it is a lot of times when land comes up it's not achievable for the small little guy to go and buy up some more of it it's it's some uh, big conglomerate just buying up land and then turning around and renting it back to to that small farmer mm-hmm. who can afford maybe the rent but not to purchase it so so what can our members do what should they do what's American Farm Bureau already doing what's the policy out there about all this. Yeah. Well, I think you can hear that it's hard for us to tell a story about it that has a face and a name. And that's really what we need is we need American Farm Bureau is, is all out, all in on this issue. Um, but right now it's just all facts, figures, and data. And the real benefit of the Farm Bureau, we talk about it every week, is when we can put a face and a name uh, with that story that makes this real because right now it just sounds good on the campaign trail, like I said, to say we're going to tax the rich, help the poor to middle class, and fix all these roads and bridges and fix all this infrastructure and create all these jobs when in fact they're punishing businesses that already have good paying jobs out, such as agriculture that need more people to come and work for them. So it's it's just a backwards way of doing it. But we need those people to step up that this this could affect or have as affected. Yeah, because I'm going to tell you now, as a, as a storyteller, it's really hard sometimes to get people to talk about these things because it is so – it puts them in such a position that they have to expose what's going Pretty on. Vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, nobody, nobody likes to talk about – how much money they have or don't have or mm-hmm. how much debt they have. I mean, that's that's the reality of this issue is that somebody who has millions of dollars in dirt with their name on it uh, may be facing these taxes if they were to be passed, but they may also have millions of dollars in debt wrapped up in equipment costs and other um, 
assets that they're still paying off. So it's it's not something we want to expose everybody's bottom line, but we need uh, folks to, to think through this, think through their estate plan and see how this would impact it. And, and let's tell that story, you know, in general, general terms. Well, uh, I don't want to in this par- portion of the podcast on, on such a uh, down note. So what's the latest with Evie? <laughs> we slept through the night. Okay. Uh, my, you know, I'm not working up in an estate plan just yet, but uh, she's uh, she's doing good. So y'all had fun at the beach. I saw the pictures. Yeah, I I, I had to get back from vacation to fight for our our tax uh, <laughs> laws here in the nation. But no, things are things are good, and uh, I'll tell you, it's ex- it's exciting times with with Farm Bureau and your family. We we got. It looks on the horizon like things are clearing up, and we may be able to get back together a little more with different things. So stay tuned. I've been dreaming up this week some ways, and maybe we can get some of these staffers that I keep talking about down to uh, our state and get them around to see some folks and put some faces and, and names uh, with these families like mine and my little girl and, and you and yours out there who are farming and ranching every day. Well, we, we're looking forward to that, and I know Carl will be there with camera in hand. So... Uh, we're, we're looking forward to times when we can get back together. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have Louisiana Farm Bureau Legislative Specialist Joe Mapes to join us and tell us what's going on at the state capitol in Baton Rouge. I'm Jim Harper, president of the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. Agriculture is big business in our state. $11 billion a year for Louisiana's economy. When other businesses had to shut their doors, our essential Louisiana farmers and ranchers continue to provide each of us with the food and fiber we need to survive. That's why I'm a proud member of the Louisiana Farm Bureau family. Visit LAFarmBureau.org, the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation, the voice of Louisiana agriculture. Yeah, we're back from uh, just a little bit of a break there. Joining us now is Joe Mapes, the Louisiana Farm Bureau Legislative Specialist, a.k.a. lobbyist. I know you embrace that term, uh, Joe, but we were talking about taxes before the break on the federal level, and taxes are still an issue here on the state level there while this session is going on. Correct, uh, Avery. We're in an alleged tax reform session. Alleged. Alleged. Well, uh, alleged because before we got $5 billion, and that's with a B, of uh, federal relief money for the COVID from the federal government, tax reform was somewhat of an urgent issue as we were headed into the session. Since then, a lot of the wind has been let out of that balloon since we got that money in. There were a lot of bills I know filed looking at all kinds of exemptions, including agricultural exemptions. Where do those bills stand now? There were several bills and still are that would remove all exclusions and all exemptions on agricultural inputs. Um, In the Committee of Origin, which is the House Tax Committee, the Ways and Means Committee, uh, the concept was very difficult to debate. We feel like we killed the concept in the committee. However, the, one of the bills was let out onto the House floor by the committee, uh, which we couldn't really fight, but for the purposes of, of uh, for discussion on the subject matter. The problem when you discuss all these exclusions and exemptions uh, is when you put them all on the table, then you have, it's Katie bar the door because every industry and every profession has a lobbyist 
And now it's not going to be this fair and equitable distribution. You know, it's going to be whoever's lobbyist is most influential. And I'm a lobbyist, so I'm kind of biased, but that's really not a good process uh, to open it up for discussion like that because it's not organized. It's just too wide open. Who has the loudest voice? I mean, that's what that's what it comes yes. down to, right? Yes, that's what it'll come down to. And, and, and quite frankly, frankly, that's not how we should do tax reform. You know, we should look at some of the property taxes, ad valorem, corporate taxes, you know, uh, personal income taxes, sales taxes. But we shouldn't be removing exemptions that stimulate an entire industry like agriculture. I talked to one of the authors of the bill who didn't understand that. And, I, and he said, look, if y'all just want to start keep getting free stuff, uh, you farmers just want to keep getting free stuff instead of having good tax policy. You can do that. And I said, well, number one, we're not getting free stuff. Farmers are not getting free stuff. And number two, what you're calling good tax policy, 49 other states disagree with you. And they may be wrong, but we don't want to look different than them because if we look different than them, we we become uncompetitive, mm-hmm. not just in the surrounding states of Mississippi, Texas, and Arkansas, not just in America, but in the world market, we become uncompetitive. Which is huge. We talked about this on the podcast. We got Troy Carter is now elected uh, the congressman-elect, and we were talking about the value of the Mississippi River, which flows right Correct. through the middle of his district. That's why but- industry's here. Andy said the number, 60% of uh, exports from the country go right through our state. So, I mean, that gives, I think, Louisiana a competitive advantage, and then we're almost offsetting it if something like this was to happen, right? I mean, Right. That's that, correct. That's kind of what I'm, I'm hearing just based on conversations today, but that's that would be... <laughs> That would be a, a no good idea in my head. So back to the tax exemption exclusion uh, repeal bills, exclusion is interesting because an exclusion doesn't exist. So how do you calculate that into a formula? Well, it's not going to stop certain people in this legislature from trying the fact that nothing exists, but we're going to calculate it anyway and put a fiscal note together so that we can put a target on agriculture's back. No, we don't need that, Avery. Yeah, we can't, we can't have that for sure. And the uh, the other part of that is you can't pro- prove a negative. No. But but one thing that they are that is still advancing and correct me if I'm wrong, there are some bills that are looking at uh, doing away with the federal income tax deduction for income taxes. How what's what kind of effect are you? What is that doing with uh with at the legislature? How how are folks re- responding to that? Because it seems to be moving through. It does seem to be moving through, but I'm going to make a prediction that it's going to have trouble like the rest of them because of the extra COVID money that's come in to the tune of $3.1 billion in the state's general fund. $1.9 of that five went to the local uh, governments for infrastructure improvement, and then the rest came to us. And I just think it has an effect on all tax reform, Avery. Uh, we'll have to wait and see until the end. I think that, that uh, you know, you're talking about a Republican legislature looking at restructuring, uh, you know, income tax brackets, right? That's what you're mm-hmm. talking about. And I just don't know that that's going to happen where conservative legislators who who uh, stand to lose more from, you know, squeezing or, or compressing the income tax, squeezing or, or compressing the income tax brackets. Um, I don't see them doing that with all this extra money that's come in from the federal government. Yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to say we need to uh, really change up our budget when, hey, we've got cash to swim in like Scrooge McDuck, I guess. Yeah, and (laughs) that's true. And let me say something else about this tax reform in general. It's not organized from what I can tell. I mean, there's a lot of concepts floating around. There's a lot of individual legislators that think that they're going to change the world or save the world with one bill. 
I would say, that, and, and, and it's all being done too quickly, too. I mean, we just decided tax reform out of the blue. Let's do it in one session. No. I'm no expert, but I've been around long enough to know that these things take time. Okay, revenues lag, money lags coming in. You know, you've got to consider the unintended consequences, the long-term effects of re- reshaping the tax code. Uh, I think that's done over a you know multiple-year period, maybe three to five years, maybe five to ten. I don't know, but you just don't come in and chop off the revenue stream the way it's constructed now. It, it just would upset too many things. You were talking about long-term effects. One of the places where I know you and, and lots of landowners have some concern on long-term effects are solar panels, solar panels going up on land. Uh, tell me what legislation is there. I know the Speaker of the House, Clay Sheck-Snyder, has a resolution there on the House side. Senator Brett Allah, who is a sugarcane farmer from uh, St. Mary Parish, he has uh, a bill that's there before the Senate. How are those progressing, and what are those? what would those do? Right. Okay. To the, you're right. There's two bills, and, and the one that would put, place a moratorium in place for one year would place a moratorium on the ITEP program. That's the industrial tax exemption program that is used. It's a program that the state offers. It gives tax uh, deductions. It gives tax breaks to big companies. The goal is to incent them to come to our state for the purposes of stimulating economic activity and creating jobs. And so we are curious if the ITEP program is a proper application in the solar industry because we don't know how many jobs the solar industry creates. We don't know how much economic activity it spurs after the solar plant that is, is installed on the landowner's land. I mean, you've, I've heard you call this, I don't know if it's been on the record on the podcast, but I've heard you call it the Wild West right now with, with solar. I mean, and that's all, all this resolution, this moratorium, moratorium yes. is, that right? is really set to do is just like Put the brakes and say, "Hey, let's 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 look at it before we start just handing out money and tax breaks and incentives and stuff." Right. Right. Yeah. And then in West Baton Rouge Parish recently, the parish council there denied the ITEP request because local governments can say state may have approved the ITEP request, but the local government can turn it down. Do you, uh, well, you live in West Baton Rouge Parish, so that's why I'm kind of uh, that's tossing an interesting that to you. situation because that council, West Baton Rouge Council voted to approve the ITEP program uh, uh, prior to the Louisiana Commerce uh, and Industry Board, okay? That is the governor's board that vets these issues and then stamps them and sends them back down to the locals and says, yes, this is this is an appropriate use of the ITEP program. Go ahead and forward with it. And then the council at that point votes a measure in, a, you know, a resolution in to implement the program. In this case, they decided to do it in reverse on their own and as a preemptive measure, send it to the Commerce and Industry Board thinking, look, we'll make it easy for them. You know, they can just uh, look at this and just rubber stamp it. And that didn't happen. Uh, not only did that council vote that measure down, yesterday the Louisiana Commerce and Industry Board took up the West Baton Rouge issue along with the Morehouse Paris issue. And they not only voted it down, they tabled the measure. Okay. I, think it was, I, don't, I think it was 11 to 3. But tabling is a serious deal, and they did it because there's pending legislation at the legislature. The moratorium is in one place is in place for one year that suspends the use of the ITEP program. Senator Brett Alon's bill would put in rules and regulations at the Department of Natural Resources. And the thinking being, 
it is the wild, wild west, Carl. Okay, there have been situations like Texas where it was unregulated over there, where it became part of the problem, okay? So all we're looking to do is to help our farmers, help our landowners and property owners have some protections. We can't tell property owners what to do with their property. We never would, okay? All we want to do is make sure that they're safe and that they don't end up with a bunch of orphan solar plants on their property. In, in, the, in the early 1900s, we began to allow exploration of oil and gas drilling in Louisiana. Right now, we still have orphan wells left over uh, from that that, that are uh, dangerous. I met a man in the Capitol this week whose uh, 13-year-old daughter in February was blown up by an orphan well, 250 feet in the air, and she died, okay? There's a bill, I think it's Senate Bill 66, that would put, that would mandate fences around orphan wells. We don't need our property owners to end up with a big solar plant on their property, which you can't just take down with a crescent wrench and bring to the street and BFI is going to pick up. Okay, you got to mm-hmm. hire a structural engineer to formulate a decommissioning plan. All right. So this is a big deal. So that's what Brett Alon's build. The moratorium puts a hold on it so we can protect our landowners temporarily. Now, look, maybe the solar industry can operate just fine without the ITEP program in Louisiana because they have federal subsidies up to about 80 percent, you know, but we're fixing to see if this moratorium resolution passes and then we can drill down Avery and look at what rules and regs, you know, like how do they get paid instead of a five-year option contract, 20-year option contract, maybe some uh, royalties or something like they're doing in other states. Well, let's drill down a couple of feet under the earth and talk about another issue that's come up, uh, especially for some of our sugarcane farmers. Uh, pipeline right-of-ways. Uh, I understand that there's uh, some discussion about that at the Capitol as well. Right, there is, and usually I don't name names, but Kinder Morgan has been a less than uh, friendly neighbor and player to people in agriculture. Uh, we're trying to work with the uh, oil and gas industry to bring them to the table. Real quick, for the uneducated listener, maybe, who is Kinder Morgan? What is that? Kinder is that- Morgan is a pipeline company, and, and they're at the heart of this issue. We've got a landowner who's got pipelines on their land that, that have been there since 1960. They have a contract since the 60s. They have a contract with Kinder Morgan, and uh, Kinder Morgan wants to now move some uh, gas. I'm not sure if it's a new find that they have or something, but they want to move it through these pipelines, and so they're mandating that the landowner put three feet mounds of dirt on top of these pipelines that go through his property. Well, there goes his farmland, number one, but it really doesn't matter because how are you going to irrigate it if you have these three-foot mounds on your property, especially if you have more than one pipeline? And that's in the original contract where the, the operator, Kenner Morgan in this case, can compel, can mandate that the landowner does certain things in, in, in the interest of safety. They have the right to maintain these prop, this property in the interest of safety, and they can compel the landowner. If this landowner doesn't do this, they can lock them off of their land. They can shut them off of their land, okay? Wow. So that's what we're dealing with up there. Um, we, we've got an idea of how to deal with this. Uh, I'm not going to uh, blast it publicly right now, but stay tuned, uh, Kinder Morgan, and you'll see, you know, <laughs> within a, a, a few days or a week or so. Well, I know that uh, if you're watching out for it, uh, chances are uh, it, you're gonna you're gonna prevail, Joe, as you normally do. Quick question: So, is that where where is all that issue happening? Is that like a local area? Like a 
Is it, is it South Louisiana? Is it across it's the South state? It's South Louisiana. It's in one of is our it southern a parishes. Specific crop that's mostly affected by that. Um, I'm not. I don't think necessarily it's a crop uh, that's being affected. It's just the farmland in general. You gotcha. Know? Okay. Yeah, because I don't think anybody's. Uh, it's not exclusive to certain commodities or anything like that. No, Kinder Morgan is an equal opportunity uh, ass kicker. You know, they go, <laughs> they go after uh, anybody in agriculture. I'm told there's 16 complaints about ag down at the ag department uh, from Kinder Morgan. And eight of them, I mean, about ag, and eight of them are from Kinder Morgan. So. 50%. Yeah. Wow. wow. And I know people in ag. We ain't 50% of the problem, I promise you. Not at all. We we are, we are try to be, since we're only 2% of the population, I guess we can only be 2% of the problem, but we're always ready to be 100% of the solution. That's true. That's true. Well, I think that does it for this edition of the Grassroots Government Podcast. On behalf of Andy Brown, Carl Wiggers, and Joe Mapes, thank you so much for listening. I'm Avery Davidson. And Joe, what's what's the truth about uh, how you get legislation passed and how do you deal with it? Well, you know, you got to be at the table, Avery, because you know if you're not at the table, Carl, you're on the menu. 